Hello listeners and welcome to episode 2 of Radio Press. My name's Ronan McAuliffe. And I'm Lily Hogan. I'm delighted to be back today, Ronan, with this PBC podcast in association with Skullborough. In this episode, we'll be covering a wide variety of topics, including where Napoleon got his horses from. We'll be bringing you a cooking special on sesame chicken. Also, we'll have the Sports Hub talking about Kobe Bryant. Let's get to it. And first up, we have Ross Daly talking about one of the most pressing issues in today's society. Parents' rights in same-sex marriage. Hi, thanks for having me. Today I'll be talking about same-sex parental rights in Ireland. Before we get into this, I just need to say that I am not an expert on this topic, and though I feel I know enough about this subject to speak about it, the entire situation is incredibly complex with many, many layers. Anyways, I am being as blunt and as clear as I possibly can when saying this. In 2021, same-sex parents do not have nearly the same parental rights as heterosexual couples in Ireland. On the 16th of November 2015, same-sex marriage was legalised in Ireland, which was a huge step in the right direction, except for the fact that this is where the equality ends. The large majority of same-sex couples in Ireland have little to no joint rights over their child, and this is an issue that needs to be talked about more. In May 2020, legislation was introduced allowing some same-sex couples to have their names on the child's birth certificate, provided they fit into a certain criteria. This, however, doesn't cover a vast amount of queer couples, the most prominent category being male couples. This also doesn't cover people who have gone abroad for surrogacy, considering surrogacy is not only practically not recognised in Ireland, but can cost anywhere from 30 to 100,000 euro, which most families cannot afford. Basically, when two same-sex parents go abroad for surrogacy, and then come back to Ireland, the non-biological parent is not recognised by the Irish government as a parent or legal guardian, and does not appear on the birth certificate or have any legal rights over their child. This means that were the child to end up in hospital, the non-biological parent does not get to have a say on medical decisions. However, this is only a fraction of the problem. If the non-biological parent wants to apply for guardianship of the child, they have to wait two whole years before they are recognised, whereas for heterosexual couples, the wait is only three months. For female same-sex couples who opt for home insemination, it is only the one giving birth who is recognised as a legal parent to the child. This does not apply to married heterosexual couples, where the husband is automatically given parental rights over the child. Like I said before, surrogacy is essentially not even recognised in Ireland. The surrogate for the child is legally the mother, and if the surrogate is married, then her husband is legally considered the father and is also given rights over the child, until it is proven otherwise. This means that due to the fact the surrogate is legally the mother, She can legally decide whether or not she wants to keep the child or not, up until the child is 18 years old. Imagine raising your child as your own for their entire childhood, only for the child to be taken from you, and you legally cannot do anything about it. Then there was the question, why can't you just adopt from the surrogate? Which again is useless, as private adoptions are not yet legal in Ireland, as it's all done through one body. This means that the couple might not even be connected to the surrogate's child if they were to go through the public adoption system. When one parent is classified as a legal stranger to their own child, this creates a large amount of problems for the child as they grow up that could all be avoided, such as inheritance rights, foreign travel, school enrolments, etc. This is a serious issue that needs to be talked about more so we can raise awareness on this topic. The Irish government has no regulations about how heterosexual couples conceive their children in their homes, which begs the question, why should there be such regulations for same-sex couples? There will be links to information about this issue on our social media 
and a petition that I urge you to sign. Thank you. For over a hundred years, tours have been part of rugby union. For 25 of those years, Irish Rugby Tours has been bringing schools, colleges and clubs to the far corners of the globe. Despite the disaster of 2020, none of our clients lost a deposit. We are now organising innovative plans for when the sport reopens. Why not visit our site at irishrugbytours.com or better still, contact us to talk about our ideas. Girls play rugby too! New York. We all think of big dreams and skyscrapers, but let's take a trip underground with Mark O'Connell to the subway. Hello, thanks for having me on. My name is Mark O'Connell. I'm going to be going back to New York and I'm going to be talking about the New York City subway. Over the years, I've been lucky to have so many journeys to New York City and traveling on the subway a lot. One of my favorite things to do is look out the window at the incredible views New York City has to offer. So you might be wondering, how is it feasible for eight and a half million people to get around New York City, which is the most populated city in America, and go around five different boroughs? Well, I have the answer for you. Most of them take the subway. The transit system of underground and elevated trains that is the city's lifeblood. There's 472 stations, or stops as some people call them. Uh, It is run by a public agency and it is the result of three separate systems that merged in the 1940s. A fare is $2.75, which in euro would be €2.30. The price of a ticket or a fare is the same no matter how far you travel. The price has actually risen from $0.05 to $2.75 since the 1940s which is a massive inflation. The annual ridership of the subway is 1.7 billion, which is unbelievable considering there's only 7 billion people on the planet. The first ever subway was built in 1904 in Manhattan and was 9.1 miles long. So as you can see, it is really um, escalated since then. Other cool things about the subway, that there's a New York Transit Museum In Grand Central, there's a shop where they sell subway hoodies, subway t-shirts, miniature trains, cups, different types of merchandise. The subway is really big in popular culture. A movie from the 70s, which is called The Warriors, is about gangs on a subway. Jay-Z, the famous rapper, his stage name is named after the J and Z lines in Brooklyn. Although I've talked about the subway in its glamorous ways, It's not all glamour, as there are many problems to the subway. Some of the problems with the subway is that it has an old system, crumbling infrastructure that needs repair. But obviously it is hard to do that in a city that doesn't sleep, where the subway is running constantly. You have your typical crime and violence in some stations. Busking is another big part of the subway, as many people make their living by singing and dancing. Another way people make their living on the subway is selling different things. Homelessness is big on the subway, as many homeless people will buy one ticket and stay on the train for hours as it goes back and forth from the first stop to the last stop. There's lots of vermin around in the subway. For the times I've been there, I've seen lots of rats and mice, which is not very appealing. Also, the subway is losing money, as although the price has really drastically risen, it still costs a lot more for the city to run. Also, there's lots of uh, Irish connections with the subway. 
the contribution of so many Irish workers, uh, sand hogs are what they're called. Uh, there are many Irish people who built deep tunnels underground. The first founder of the Transport Workers Union was from Kerry. His name is Mike Quill. And then the last thing I'd like to talk about is why I love the subway so much. I think it's a window into New York. You can see everyone, hear everyone, hear music, see dancing, hear different languages, see different types of people, and can take you anywhere, really, in New York City. I'm very appreciative of the hardworking people that have built up the subway and continue to run it as why it's still running in the modern era. Thanks for listening. I hope you get the opportunity to travel on the subway, which has given me so much pleasure over the years. Buttevin takes its name from the French language, but did you know that Napoleon also bought his horse there? Over to Michael O'Sullivan. Today I'm going to talk to you about the history of horses in Cork. First of all, I'm going to talk to you about a fact that is not well known, but certainly jaw-dropping. In 1810, it is believed that Napoleon Bonaparte purchased his most famous horse, Marengo, in a fair in North Cork. He named the horse after the Battle of Marengo. The horse was purchased in Carmi Fair. This fair is the most popular horse fair in Cork and is held in Buddhapint every year. But back in the 19th century, it was set up at Carmi Cross, which is a crossroads just outside Buddhapint Town. There is a huge debate at the moment whether Marengo's skeletal remains should be brought back to Buddhapint. They are currently being held in the National Army Museum in Chelsea, London. The locals want Marengo back as he is a huge part of the town's name and put the town on the map for the equine industry. Marengo was a grey Arabic stallion, presumed to be bred at the famous El Nasri stud in Egypt. He was then imported to France, eventually moving on to Ireland, where he was later purchased. Marengo was wounded eight times in his service and carried Napoleon into famous battles like the Battle of Waterloo. Now I'll bring you forward in time, to the 1940s, to a man named Vincent O'Brien. Vincent is originally from Churchtown, outside Mallow, and is a well-known horse trainer. Vincent's horse won the Grand Nationals three times. After three successful years, Vincent moved to Tipperary, where he set up the best stud and racehorse training facility in Ireland, called Coolmore Stud and Ballydoyle Training Facility. In 2003, he was voted the greatest influence in horse racing history in a worldwide poll hosted by the Racing Point. And to stay on the topic of racing, I want to finalise by telling you about two other famous horses. Firstly, you have Imperial Call, who was bred in Coachford. He won both the Hennessy Gold Cup and the Cheltenham Gold Cup in 1996. Unlike most modern racehorses, Imperial Call was not a thoroughbred, which makes him unique. Then you have Denman, a very dark-coated chestnut gelding, also known as the Tank, bred in Cork, who also won the Cheltenham Gold Cup in 2008. Overall, I hope I've shown you how rich equine history is in Cork. Thank you for listening. And now it's time for one of my dear friends, Iman Zalkanan, to bring us a cultural piece on her home roots in Pakistan. Hi, my name is Iman and I am a Muslim girl born and raised in Ireland. My parents are both from Pakistan, so we try to keep alive all of our favourite traditions at home, including food, our national language Urdu and much more. First I'll be talking about Eid al-Fitr. This is also called the Festival of Breaking the Fast. It's a religious holiday that marks the end of the month, dawn to sunset fasting, called Ramadan. 
Muslims celebrate by marking their day with morning prayers, wearing their best clothes, and spending time with their friends and family. It's one of the biggest celebrated festivals in Pakistan. Coming to this country, there are huge challenges for Pakistanis, not the least of which is the weather. In Pakistan, the climate usually varies between hot summers and cool winters. The dry hot weather is broken occasionally by dust storms and thunderstorms that temporarily lower the temperature, which is called a monsoon. Summer evenings are usually cool with a rough 11 to 17 degrees. And during the summer of 2017, the highest temperature ever recorded was 54 degrees on May 28th in the province Balochistan. During winter, Pakistan faces cold weather across the country, but the coldest region is the north with up to minus 21 degrees. One thing Pakistanis and Irish people have in common is a love of sport. But of course, weather conditions in Pakistan lend themselves better to certain sports, chief of which would be cricket. The most popular sport in Pakistan is cricket, alongside hockey and squash. Some of the greatest cricket players, such as Imran Khan, who is also the current Prime Minister of Pakistan, is very well known across the world. Pakistan has a very productive leather industry, as up to 55% of the world's footballs are made in Sialkot in Pakistan. Field hockey is a national game and they have won Olympic medals as well as world championships. In our home, my mother being head chef of the kitchen, she loves cooking us Pakistani dishes so there's no need to go to the local takeout. Although, I must confess, sometimes I'd wish she'd give us fish and chips. Pakistani food is very well known for its aromatic spices and flavours. Many traditional dishes you would be able to find in Pakistan are also widely available in Ireland. Some rice dishes include biryani and palau which are full of aromatic spices and meat. Many of you may have heard of kebabs. In Pakistan, the most popular types of kebab is a chapli kebab, which is round and flat, or a sea kebab, which is long and more pencil-shaped. The most popular food all around would have to be curry. There is a wide range of curries, such as chicken karai, lamb korma, and chicken tikka masala. These foods are mainly eaten with their traditional naan bread or roti. In Pakistan, these are made in clay ovens. A traditional cold drink, which is usually served with these dishes, is lassi which is a simple yogurt-based or buttermilk beverage. Some desserts that are served after these dishes include kheer, which is a sweet rice pudding, and jalebi, which is a fried sugar pretzel. Thank you very much for listening to me, and I hope I have improved your knowledge on Pakistan. Goodbye and take care of yourself, or as we say in Urdu, alafis or apnachyalakke. Next up, we have Daniel Healy bring you a piece that really grinds his gears. Hi guys, my name is Daniel Healy and I cannot stand men in their 40s who wear lycra when they're cycling. I'm going to be honest, until two days ago I had no idea what I was going to talk about. But luckily for all of us, on the Saturday just gone by, my bus was held up by about 35 middle-aged cyclists, all wearing the same lycra suits. We all know the type. It's the same uncle who shows up to his nephew's communion, covered in sweat, 20 minutes late, and cycling this obscenely expensive bike. You know, just so everyone realises he's able to cycle the bike. What's even worse is he'll probably get a grand total of six uses out of this machine that's set him back two months on his mortgage repayments before deciding he needs a new one. Being honest, Dave, I'd be more concerned about the divorce papers your wife's getting written up than how long it takes you to do the ring of Kerry. But good for you, nothing like a cycle. You know what the worst thing about these lycra lovers is? Why they wear it. Naturally, being the inquisitive guy that I am, I did a bit of research. 
and apparently they go faster wearing lycra. Here's the issue I have. For the gents I see wearing lycra and cycling past my house on a Sunday morning, loose-fitting clothes are definitely not the biggest issue. John, you're 5'9 and weigh 150kgs. I don't think a baggy t-shirt is the reason you're not competing in the Tour de France. Now I'm not going to lie to you. I've had some pretty horrific experiences with skin-tight clothing in my time, mostly involving my father. One moment stands out particularly when he showed up to watch a match wearing, and please prepare yourself for this, skin-tight tracksuit pants. I nearly got sick on the pitch. Michael, you're 48. The time for skinny tracksuit pants was 35 years ago. Not to your son's hurling again. Anyways, that's just something that grinds my gears. Thanks for listening. And here's Olin Sheehan bringing us back to the kitchen with his secret recipe for sesame chicken. Hi, I'm Olin O'Sheachan, and today I'm going to show you how to make one of my favourite dishes from the kitchen. The crispy sesame chicken is a delicious homemade alternative to a cheeky takeaway. Sweet, salty, crispy, sticky, and a little bit of spice. It covers all bases for one of those meals that everyone polishes off. Not a scrap left. In order to make the sesame chicken recipe, you will need 5 tablespoons of vegetable oil, 2 eggs, lightly beaten, 3 tablespoons of corn flour, 10 tablespoons of all-purpose flour, half a tablespoon of salt, half a tablespoon of pepper, half a tablespoon of garlic salt, two tablespoons of paprika, three chicken breast fillets, chopped into bite-sized chunks. For the sauce, you will need one tablespoon of sesame oil. You can leave it out and just sprinkle some sesame seeds in at the end if you prefer. Two cloves of garlic, peeled and minced. One tablespoon of Chinese rice vinegar. White wine vinegar will work too. Two tablespoons of honey. Two tablespoons of sweet chili sauce. Three tablespoons of ketchup. Two tablespoons of brown sugar, four tablespoons of soy sauce, boiled rice, two tablespoons of sesame seeds, and a bunch of onions or scallions chopped to add on at the end. Heat the oil in a large frying pan until very hot. Whilst the oil is heating, place an egg in one shallow bowl and add corn flour in another. Add flour, salt, pepper, garlic, salt and paprika to another bowl and mix together. Drench the chicken in the corn flour, then dip in the egg. Make sure all the chicken is covered in egg wash. And finally, drench it in the seasoned flour. Add to the frying pan and cook on a high heat for 6-7 to minutes, turning 2 or 3 times during the cooking, until well browned. You may need to cook in 2 batches. Remove from the pan and place in a bowl lined with kitchen towels. Add all the sauce ingredients to a hot pan Stir and bubble on a high heat until the sauce reduces to about a third. This should take two to three minutes. Add the chicken back in and toss the sauce to coat for one to two minutes. Turn off the heat and divide between four bowls. Serve with boiled rice and top with sesame seeds and spring onions. And there you have it, the perfect Friday night. Up next, we have Ronan Murphy on the golden years of the cinema. Imagine it. Sitting down in a dimly lit room with dozens of strangers you've never met before, all waiting for the lights to turn off and the projector to turn on. Perhaps some people are chatting idly around you in whispers and low voices, but there is really only one thing that fills the room, an all-encompassing sense of anticipation for the movie to come. 
The lights fade to black, smothering the room in darkness and silencing those still talking. And now you wait. You know in a few seconds, the large piece of plain white screen in front of you is about to capture your imagination and not let you out of your seat until it's done with you. Finally, after a few long seconds, the projector turns on. MGM Studios comes on screen. Leo the Lion roars ferociously and the experience has begun. But for now, this experience has been put on hold. Another casualty of recent events. The future of cinema is uncertain. But while the future of cinema is shaky, the past is rock solid. It's tempting to assume any film older than 30, 20 or even 10 years is a decrepit 2 hour long waste of time. Maybe you see old films as a decaying bits of video from a bygone era slowly slipping into obscurity. But if you're willing to put in a tiny bit of effort, you're sure to find some of the best movies ever created. In Martin Scorsese's recently published essay, Il Maestro, he described the art of lost cinema. Cinema lost to the general public, directors, actors and writers whose names are completely foreign to those outside of certain circles. He talked about the work of Federico Fellini, an Italian director who directed films in the 50s through to the early 90s. Fellini is about as Italian it gets, often quoted as saying that life is a combination of magic and pasta. In what are regarded as two best films, Eight and a Half from 1963 and La Dolce Vita from 1960, the atmosphere is so Italian it feels like you've travelled there yourself. In La Dolce Vita, you can almost taste the spaghetti bolognese and feel the gentle sea breeze off the coast of Santa Marinella Beach with its white sun-baked sands. In times where you can't go more than 5 kilometers outside of your own home, it really is something special to be taken 2,705 kilometers all the way to Rome. Quite a bit of Federico Fellini's work is on Amazon Prime, and is certainly worth your time. Movies about Italy aren't for everyone. Maybe you'd rather watch something more exciting. Like the 1956 film The Killing, which follows a group of bandits as they attempt to rob a racetrack casino. For an hour and a half, this movie pulls you in and does not let go. You can't help but glue yourself to the screen as everything goes horribly wrong. Films like this can be the closest thing we have to a time machine. We can see what life was back in the 1950s. They reflect the fears and hopes of the people of the time, and The Killing is a perfect example, as we see how they struggle to escape their dead-end jobs and make up enough money to get out of their depressing situations. For my final recommendation, I'd like to suggest something a lot more recent. A 2003 detective film from Korea called Memories of Murders. Loosely based off a real string of murders, it is told from the perspective of two small town detectives who are completely out of their depth in the case. And it's tense, dark, and absolutely great. If you can get over the subtitles, this movie will sear itself into your memory. Memories of Murders is a must-see if you have even the faintest interest in any crime-related stories, and it is certainly not to be taken lightly. When cinemas reopen... Maybe more respect will be given to those who inspired the films of today. For over 100 years, tours have been part of Rugby Union. For 25 of those years, Irish Rugby Tours has been bringing schools, colleges and clubs to the far corners of the globe. Despite the disaster of 2020, none of our clients lost a deposit. We are now organising innovative plans for when the sport reopens. Why not visit our site at irishrugbytours.com or better still, contact us to talk about our ideas. Girls play rugby too! (laughs) 
Let's go over to the Sports Hub where Leon and Emmett discuss one of my childhood sporting heroes, the illustrious Kobe Bryant. Hello and welcome back to the Sports Hub with Emmett and Leon. On the 26th of January 2020, the world was shocked at the passing of Kobe and his daughter Gianna Bryant after a tragic helicopter accident. And today we are going to take you through the career of this extraordinary player. Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest to ever pick up a basketball. His mentality, mental strength and sheer ability is what set him apart from others. Kobe was confident every time he played and knew he was the main man on the court. Not only was Kobe a great athlete, he was an icon and a role model. He became one of the biggest players in the basketball world and all of sport. You didn't need to watch basketball to know who Kobe was. He was that good. He was reliable every game and at sometimes unguardable. Kobe was drafted straight out of high school in 1996 with the 13th pick by the Charlotte Hornets, but he didn't last long there. He was traded not long after to the Los Angeles Lakers. In 1999, Phil Jackson, one of the greatest NBA coaches of all time, joined the Los Angeles Lakers as head coach. He had already won a three-peat twice with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Kobe and Shaquille O'Neal teaming up aided him to a third three-peat, beating the Indiana Pacers in 2000 the Philadelphia 76ers in 2001 and the New Jersey Nets in 2002. This was the last time the team won a three-peat, with Kobe playing a huge part in it. Kobe and Shaq fell out in 2004, with Shaq calling Kobe selfish and a show-off. Neither party was happy. They managed to hold it together, but fell short in the 2004 finals against Detroit. The Lakers didn't re-sign Phil Jackson. Shaq was traded and Kobe re-signed for seven years the very next day earning $136 million over that time. On the 22nd of January 2006, Kobe scored a career-high 81 points against the Toronto Raptors, the second-highest total in a single game in league history, behind Will Chamberlain's 100 points. In 2008, Kobe joined the USA team for the Summer Games in Beijing. Bryant averaged 15 points and helped USA win the gold medal against Spain in the final. Also, in that same year, Leon, the Lakers traded for Pau Gasol, which gave Kobe some help. They went on to make it to the finals that year, but lost to the Boston Celtics. However, the following year, Bryant and the Lakers beat the Orlando Magic, making it Bryant's fourth title. In 2010, Bryant helped the Lakers beat the Celtics in Game 7 to win his fifth and final championship ring. Bryant won his final golden medal at the Olympics in London at the age of 33. Near the end of 2015, Kobe published a poem in the Players' Tribune called Dear Basketball. He announced in this that he would be retiring at the end of the season. In his final game, Kobe put up a huge 60 points where the Lakers beat the Utah Jazz. In April 2017, Kobe made an animated short film from his poem Dear Basketball. He added another trophy to his collection after winning an Oscar. This short film also won a sports Emmy and an Annie Award in that same year. Well, Emmett, that same year, the Lakers retired the numbers 8 and 24, which are both the numbers he wore during his time at the Lakers, and of course, changed them forever. By the end of his career, Kobe Bryant helped the Lakers win five NBA championships and was an 18-time All-Star, a 15-time member of the All-NBA team, a 12-time member of the All-Defensive team, the 2008 MVP, and a two-time NBA Finals MVP. The tragic passing of him and his 13-year-old daughter Gianna shocked the world and changed almost everyone's lives. He will be remembered forever. Thanks for listening. There will be more sports hubs in future episodes.
Well, that concludes Radio Prez in association with Skullvura. We hope that you had as much fun listening to this as we had making it. This podcast was recorded in the Republic of Work studio, Gork's fully equipped podcast studio on the South Mall. We are grateful for the support of our principals of both schools, without whom it would not have been possible. Our thanks to the advertisers whose contributions will go to share. The programme was produced by Aina Olinchig and with the wonderful sound engineer Elaine Smith. I've been Lily. I've been Ronan. Thank you for listening to Radio, Radio Prez. Prez.